Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Donato, and today I've got the distinct pleasure of interviewing a good friend of mine, Dr. Gino Caspari. I first met Gino through the Explorers Club, and um, he is the recipient of the prestigious New Explorers Award. He shared that with uh, his uh, his fellow adventurer and uh, explorer, Trevor, Trevor Wallace. Uh, that's a 2018 award. It's a, it's a very um, important award in the Explorers Club, so uh, hats off to Gino for his hard work to earn that. Uh, Gino's a Swiss archaeologist uh, who spent time in the United States studying at uh, Columbia University as a, a Fulbright Scholar. Uh, he's currently producing a feature-length documentary called Frozen Corpses, Golden Treasures. We're definitely going to talk more about that on today's podcast. And he's an archaeologist archaeologist. He has traveled extensively. He has uh, studied and excavated around the Mediterranean, uh, into Turkey, Syria, Central Asia, Northwestern China, and recently uh, his studies and excavations have taken him to southern Siberia, where he's focused on the Scythian culture. And he's currently leading a very large excavation uh, of an Iron Age tomb, approximately 2,800 years old or so, of who would have been somebody at the top of the tribal food chain at that time in history. Uh, we've done some projects together in the past and uh, always an exciting uh, opportunity to chat with Gino. So Gino, thanks so much for joining me today. I can't wait to dive into it and learn more about what you've been doing recently. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simon. It's great to be on the show. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, uh, it really is a pleasure. We certainly don't chat enough and uh, this just gives me a, a great opportunity to track you down and uh, make it official so I can ask you what you've been doing for the last little while. So, you know, before we dive into this, uh, let's, let's give the listeners a little background on who Gino Caspari is and what got you interested in archaeology, uh, what got you interested in the outdoors. I know you're big into uh, martial arts and the tricking elements of that. So, yeah, I'd love just to uh, get a little bit of your backstory for, uh, for the folks. Yeah, I've always been sort of a person of kind of a hyperactive nature and um, it's very tough for me to kind of sit still in front of a computer screen for extended periods of time. So, um, well, at the same time, you know, I kind of had the brains to go and study and do research and so I needed to find something that encompasses both sort of physical exercise, physical challenge and intellectual challenge and... Um, they're only really a field science can do that for me. And so archaeology really was a top pick there. So when you were a youngster, did you know you wanted to be an archaeologist? Uh, or was it just, I like science, I like math? Uh, what, what kind of got you pointed in that direction? It's funny, I always loved reading adventure stories. I loved reading about exploration. And um, didn't, when I was young, it didn't really matter so much um, if it was, you know, looking in, uh, into biological things, discovering new species or finding ancient artifacts and ancient ruins somewhere out in the middle of nowhere. But I was fascinated by these stories. Now, um, I wasn't quite aware of it because uh, coming from Switzerland, we have this sort of relatively conservative mindset of actually getting a job. And getting a job means either you become, you know, a medical doctor, uh, a lawyer or an engineer. <laughs> That's all 
sort of accepted, but um, doing something in the humanities where uh, your prospects are very uncertain and you're probably never going to have a stable job uh, is not something <laughs> that comes easy as a choice. That's right, kids. Take note of that. Archaeology is best <laughs> served as a hobby, and so is paleontology. Both Gino and I have hobbies for jobs. <laughs> yeah exactly but uh, that doesn't mean that you should be discouraged if you really want to do it and there's absolutely a way how you can make a living in archaeology it's just if you think you need the money and you need the stability in your life that's not the job for you <laughs> yeah yeah well that's true and I mean you've certainly been able to to rise through the ranks in uh, in your field and, and become someone of note and uh I mean, your your recent projects are, are evidence of that. But, you know, let's, you know, so I, I went through anthropology in North America and I saw how everything ran here. How did you move up in uh, through university? In um, Do you go into an anthropological program or, or is it just a general humanities where you eventually specialize or do you just go straight into archaeology? How'd that work for you? You actually go straight into archaeology in Switzerland. There's a number of archaeology programs there, but uh, other than the US, uh, in Switzerland, at least classical archaeology comes more from history of art. So that is sort of the mm. main methodology that you start applying from the very start. Um, I'm now much more on the natural science side of things. So I do a lot of remote sensing. I analyze satellite data. Um, I look from space uh, onto the archaeology and try to understand human environmental interaction and things like these. Um, so archaeology, you know, uh, broadly speaking, looks at human behavior in the past. And that's really as broad as a field can possibly get. Therefore, um, you also got a lot of choice uh, of what you really want to research. Right. Now, you mentioned uh, remote sensing, you mentioned satellite imagery. Is remote sensing synonymous with satellite imagery, or is there more to it? There is more to it. So remote sensing, as it says, like is just kind of sensing something remotely. <laughs> so um, that can encompass any kind of data. You can be working with drones, you can be uh, do geophysical prospections, uh, you can use satellite imagery and that means you know you have your optical imagery uh, meaning basically the stuff uh, that you see when you open google earth um, mm -hmm. or even better resolution than that so things go available data goes down to less than half a meter resolution right now um, sometimes we're working with cool things like uh, archival data from spy satellites of the u.s that you know the u.s used to uh, spy on Russia during the Cold War. Super interesting stuff. Um, so there's a wide range of uh, sources that we use to actually understand the archaeology. Interesting. Well, it's nice to know there's uh, that wide tool set, but I imagine it's hard to be an expert with all of those tools. Where, where have you focused your energy? Well, um, I'm really focusing on uh, sort of the intersection between the data and the archaeology. So I'm uh, I'm not an expert in you know the tiny details of uh, sort of lens calibration and understanding the sensors. I'm not an engineer, um, but I understand how to 
filter data for archaeological sites. I understand how to approach uh, questions that have to do with uh, environment, site constructions, and uh, similar things. So, um, and generally uh, nowadays, uh, remote sensing has become this indispensable tool that uh, you almost always use before you actually start an archaeological project because first you want to have an oversight an overview to know what is actually out there right well you know it, it's been made a big deal of with uh i may get her name wrong but sarah parsec is that uh yeah how you pronounce it she i think she her claim to fame was uh the egyptology uh work that she had done but uh it was all satellite imagery, right? And remotely sensed, both optical and uh, I'm guessing, um, you know, the other the other ranges um, that she might have been able to exploit. But she had some major success there, was an early adopter of that technology. And I, at least from my view, has kind of been lauded as, um, you know, the, the main person behind satellite uh, archaeology, if you will. I know in Canada, she's... Uh, potentially identified some additional Viking sites and, and things like that. And, you know, we've used satellite uh, imagery in a number of projects that we've done. We started using it back in 2010 before we went to the Moosin Dam. Uh, it gives you a great opportunity to ground truth things. Mind you, we didn't have the resolution of a sub-half meter like you were talking about. Uh, so we had some geometric shapes that we had seen and we're just really excited about ground truthing them. So, you know, once you, you tackle the remote sensing side of things for you, how detailed do you typically get? Do you go to sites uh, having a lot of questions already answered and, you know, being fairly certain that uh, you're going to walk away with uh, plenty of data for a paper? Or, you know, is, are there still spots around the world where you, it's still best guess, you really don't know? Yeah, so very often remote sensing people, they actually like to sit in front of the screen and look at the data and, uh, you know, they sometimes uh, quote-unquote ground truth it uh, with different data. Like if we see the same thing in different data, it's probably what we think it is. But very often it's actually extremely important to get out there and take a look on the ground because I, for example, came across this um, when I was doing my remote sensing surveys in Central Asia. And I was looking for these Scythian tombs. They're usually these uh, burial mounds that are round in shape. They're relatively flat and circular. And uh, so I saw a lot of these that looked like soil marks. Um, but I wasn't entirely sure if those were actually tombs. And when I got uh, to northwestern China, and it took me ages to get out there because it's super complicated in terms of permits and everything, um, I came across uh, these circular fences where the herders used to lock their sheep in at night. And what the sheep um, would do, they would just stomp the grass and shit the hell out. And so it would create this brown circle that then would appear in the satellite imagery as something that looked vaguely familiar to a uh, Scythian tomb. And, uh, but it was so the rest of the landscape is green <laughs> or gray or whatever. And this yeah, is a, a circular so sometimes you know it's important to be out there and actually understand what you're looking at 
Yeah, I had that advice uh, during my master's. I had a very venerable uh, prof emeritus at the time, uh, Dr. Caldwell, when I was at Western. And he gave me a horror story before I did my master's defense about somebody who was presenting on a bird. It was a biology uh, master's defense. And I guess he studied the bird wing. And the man knew everything there was to know about the bird wing, the feathers, the airflow, vasculature, everything. And uh, his warning was what happened to this student. The, uh, one of the examiners said, okay, well, draw, draw the bird. And uh, the kid couldn't. So, <laughs> you know, uh, it's always important to, to have that complete picture, understand, you know, the, the reason you're out there, what you may be looking at, and have a way to be able to pull artifact from fact. So, well, absolutely. And traditional archaeology, you know, um, has been focusing on objects. So very, very long time. And that's what, you know, kind of mirrored in the uh, European classical archaeology approach uh, with art history and all that behind it is just people were looking at nice objects. They were looking at ancient art. But what archaeology really is these days is looking at the context. And that's why we take into consideration the larger landscape. We take into consideration the site and the sites around it um, to really understand what an object means. Right. Well, that's interesting. So you've, you've been working, you've made your way now to, to Central Asia. Uh, what are some of the permitting challenges that you've had to face there? What makes it harder to work there than in Europe or any other country in particular? Oh, well, uh, if you're working in Europe, I mean, it, it's never easy to get an archaeological permit, and rightly so, because you want to, you know, kind of vet people and see that they're not destroying cultural heritage, but actually generating knowledge with it. But um, I started working in China because, um, well, starting my PhD, I was looking for an area that was essentially a blank spot on the archaeological world map. And that uh, used to be northwestern China, Xinjiang. So whenever I came across maps uh, about the archaeology of Central Asia, this place seemed to be kind of empty. And that's weird because there are very, very few empty spots uh, in terms of archaeology worldwide. Because people have been living on this planet for a very long time and there's always something that's being left over. And um, so I thought, well, why not go and take a look there and start working there, generating some first data points. Now, and what I didn't know yeah, when is did, that when did start? uh, I started in 2013 uh, setting up that project because I had spent uh, a year in China before and half a year in Taiwan. So I started, uh, you know, being able to speak Chinese and actually being able to communicate with people, building up the relationships in China. And um, without that, you really don't get anything done. So people need to know you first to trust you, of course. And that's that's one of the first challenges in China, of course, because, well, um, at least from the older scholars, very few of them actually speak uh, English uh, to an extent where it's easy to really interact with them on sort of a casual level and become friends. And so uh, speaking Chinese is sort of the first step to actually get something done there. Mm. Now, um, when it comes to the permit, and that's what you were asking, right, is that China 
in general, is a difficult place to do archaeology as a foreigner because um, they uh, want you to essentially go through the entire Chinese government to green light uh, an excavation permit. <laughs> now, um, that is possible in some areas, but northwestern China is politically uh, extremely difficult. So there are like ethnic tensions between mm -hmm. Uyghur minority and uh, Han Chinese majority. Uh, there were terrorist attacks. Uh, there's recently um, these issues with uh, the camps has been raised. So it is tricky terrain and um, China doesn't really want foreigners, you know, walking around in border zones there and uh, mapping stuff because mapping stuff, well, maps traditionally have been uh, connected to sort of strategic endeavors and uh, you don't want foreign spies there, right? But what you do as an archaeologist is you map stuff. And so yeah. um, <laughs> that's uh, generally, you know, looked at a little bit suspicious. <laughs> So getting a permit, um, you have to get clearance from the local police, from the local cultural heritage administration, from the secret police, uh, from the secret service, from the military. <laughs> and um, wow. when you think about that, uh, it's not really possible. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the issues uh, surrounding getting a permit in northwestern China. <laughs> so were you ultimately able to do some work there? I was ultimately able to do some work, although not actual excavation. Um, I partnered up with the Chinese Academy of Sciences, uh, who has uh, long-standing connections up in Xinjiang in northwestern China. And they brought me in and we jointly conducted a field project uh, that yielded a lot of very interesting data. Interesting. And so from there, how did you end up moving northwards uh, into Siberia? Just followed the, the Scythian culture, or was there another reason? Exactly, that was one uh, of the things. So I finished my PhD, and um, I had all these data, but at the same time I was seeing that political circumstances wouldn't uh, exactly get any better in the near future, um, and access would be even more restrictive so it was clear for me that I was probably never going to be able to actually start a big excavation in northwestern China. Therefore, um, I was looking into other options. And, you know, there's a range of countries that uh, border Xinjiang. Um, and ancient cultures generally did not adhere to modern nation state borders. So um, right. that's why it's funny when, you know, uh, national governments kind of uh, claim certain cultures as uh, their ancestors, because they usually just kind of transcend borders. Um, <laughs> and so uh, when you look at a world map, Xinjiang is actually very, very close to uh, Mongolia, to Kazakhstan, and uh, to Russia. Uh, in, in fact, touches Russia at the northernmost uh, tip in the Altai Mountains. And um, okay. so I uh, always wanted to head to Russia because some of the most important research on these early Iron Age cultures uh, is 
being written up uh, by Russian colleagues and um, therefore uh, going to St. Petersburg and Moscow, um, meeting people and getting in touch uh, is sort of the first step to, you know, find an entryway into Russian archaeology and actually establishing a field project in Russia. Hmm. So I can't imagine Russia is a much easier place to work than China, but somehow you've started an excavation there. So you've either figured out the system or it is an easier place to work. How's that, how's that process been? I know, I know we talked about it briefly uh, offline. Yeah, that um, <laughs> is funny because when I tell people like, you know, I'm working in Russia now and Russia has been a charm in comparison to China. Um, really? People look at me a bit weird, but <laughs> um, it's true. I mean, Russia is still very difficult and um, the sort of bureaucratic procedures evolving around actually getting a permit and uh, getting the logistics down for a big archaeological project uh, are just terribly complicated. But it is possible, mostly due to my Russian colleagues being very interested uh, in actually doing research. And so if you pick the right people and you find the ones that have the skill set to get through the system, um, then you can actually pull that off. So it sounds like, you know, working in these foreign uh, countries, you know, it's, it's all about the team and it's all about what partnerships uh, you can you can make. And this all takes time. So, you know, people who are listening and, and get the idea that, oh, man, I want to go over there and, you know, get involved or start something. It's just, you know, it's an exercise in being patient and uh, building the network, right? Absolutely. So um, research in general always is a team effort. Um, you can't do archaeology by yourself. I mean, of course, partially because... It's such a vast topic that you really need your specialists, right? So uh, yeah. I, for example, do not have a lot of an idea about ceramics and animal bones, physical anthropology, all very crucial parts of uh, the material remains that we find. And those things tell us a lot about how ancient people lived. Um, but... To understand that, you need to have somebody who really knows his stuff. And um, therefore, you need to find these people. You need to bring them on board and you need to kind of orchestrate uh, this research effort. And that's, uh, at the moment, my main responsibility is uh, bringing the people out there, um, creating an environment for them so they have all the resources necessary to conduct their research. And um, then, you know, have the exciting results as well and just kind of put them together. So I, I do see myself a little bit as sort of a central network node, um, just gathering mm -hmm. the information from all around me, sort of the specialist reports, and then creating a larger image of uh, what people in the early Iron Age did. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. Well, so let's talk about uh, the work that you've done uh, in in Siberia in particular with uh, the Scythian culture. Um, you've got some pretty exciting uh, things that you've been working on, uh, an ongoing excavation, and you had a pretty busy, challenging, difficult uh, field season this past summer. And I'd also like to hear about the types of ex experts that you did bring out from the Russian Academy. 
Yeah. Uh, um, so I am working with uh, Timur Sadikov and Igor Blachin, both uh, part of the Russian Academy of Sciences, and um, they uh, lead this project jointly with me. Um, so I got to meet them in 2016 uh, for the first time. And we okay. hung out a lot in St. Petersburg, um, discussed and brainstormed like crazy ideas. And uh, one of the questions that we stumbled upon was um, the earliest sort of Scythian tomb uh, in Siberia is Arjan 1. This is uh, a very, very large tomb that had been excavated in the 1970s. And it by itself, it defines the earliest Scythian cultural horizon. Um, for the later periods, we have, you know, dozens of excavated tombs, so we have a lot of information. But for this early period, we really don't understand very much. And so the question kind of was, like, are there more of these tombs out there? Can we find something similar that dates to a similar period or even earlier than that and basically push back uh, Scythian uh, civilization into the past even further? And um, so we consulted, you know, ancient excavation reports. We consulted uh, survey maps. We looked at satellite imagery. And um, there was this one tomb that kind of caught our attention because it seemed like, architecturally speaking, it had a very similar outline to the other one that we knew was a very, very early tomb. And um, so we put together a very small expedition, um, 10 people, uh, to actually go out there, uh, check this thing out, uh, make a 3D model of it, and uh, see if we can do some very small scale excavation and find some datable material. Um, that was the first time we actually went out there. So the problem that we had right from the start was uh, that this thing is actually situated in a swamp in Siberia. And uh, when I say that, that doesn't you, sound easy. you probably already have kind of an image in your head, right? <laughs> so yeah, ton of mosquitoes, um, like, <laughs> uh, big guys, and they, they really, really uh, start emptying you <laughs> over time. <laughs> um, then transport is a huge problem. Yes, you can walk through the swamp that kind of works um sometimes okay well let's deep. let's uh, back things up for a sec let's back things yeah. up for a sec all right so you guys are brainstorming in russia i imagine there's lots of vodka involved because you're in russia uh, not because you <laughs> like vodka necessarily um but you know you're saying how can we push this back we've got to go to the archives we've got to look at old maps we've got to scan satellite imagery how how do you dive into that process to me that is just such uh, an intimidating prospect that I'm thinking, okay, I know that over a certain area, there's potential to find something. How do you even start? And then how do you find those old maps and surveys? And what are you looking for when you find those? I know you already talked about the, uh, the circular poop rings with uh, the sheep, but <laughs> you know, how do you, are, are, is this, were you focused on something that was near or, or within striking distance to that other uh, ancient tomb that was already excavated in the 70s? Or was it just clean slate? Hey, guys, we know this is generally where we lived. Let's spend the next two months searching maps and scanning for data. 
Well, I mean, this is a big part of uh, an archaeologist's life is actually sitting in the library, right? So um, <laughs> the, the exciting part, being out there and actually, you know, doing stuff, gathering data is, is only uh, half of it. The other half is uh, really reading up on previous research and uh, knowing what has been done. And of course, as a, a general heuristic, um, it's uh, easy if you start searching close to something that is known. Um, now, there had been surveys that have been conducted and there are maps of these surveys that you can find. There are archaeological publications out there. You can search for them. Uh, and you look through these things. Um, now, there's also, you know, publicly available satellite data there. There is, um, I, for example, had data grants from the Digital Globe Foundation, uh, from the uh, European Space Agency and other things like that that give me pretty uh, direct access to new data that I then can look at when I'm, once I've defined an area that I'm interested in. Right. Interesting. So what helped you define uh, your search area? Um, so uh, Scythian culture is, is a very, very broad term. Um, that is really something uh, that you know, basically goes from the northern Black Sea region all the way to Mongolia. But um, for the earliest tombs, um, there's really this sort of uh, mythical location in southern Siberia called the Valley of the Kings. And it is a okay. valley uh, with very nice steppe vegetation. It's ideal you know, for nomadic pastoralists, people who herd their sheep and their horses up there. Um, and it has an extraordinary large amount of very big burial mounds. So that kind of was the focus at the beginning because we knew there was a lot there, but a lot of the stuff was later. So um, that one early burial mound that we knew of uh, was also located in that valley. And so that was sort of the first place that we wanted to start in. Excellent. Well, I mean, that, that makes sense. But it's, it's interesting to know that the, the culture spans such a large geographic area. I mean, it sounds like you're going you're gonna to be spending a lot of the next decade tracing uh, ancient Scythian tombs. Uh, I'm sure of it. Um, okay, so you've you've now identified a spot. You've gone out there, uh, suffered through a, a brutal summer with mosquitoes, done some preliminary excavations <laughs> a few years ago with your partners, uh, dug out uh, your tractors and your vehicles numerous times, I'm sure, from the swamp. Um, what's the next step for you? Well, so last summer we really started a full-scale excavation. So um, we built up infrastructure because um, when you excavate in Russia and you get a permit, you need to finish a site. So you can't just, you know, dig up a little bit and then it's like, nah, not really interested, uh, and then just leave it alone. Um, so once we've started, we need to finish, and therefore uh, we need to establish you know, a place where we can actually live for at least three months uh, throughout the Siberian sure. summer. Um, Siberian summer means it can actually get very hot and can get 35 degrees during daytime, but then it can also freeze at night. So you have these 
high differences in temperature uh, right. between day and night. Uh, we're staying in tents, so that can be a little bit tricky. But that just basically means that you need to learn to put on a lot of clothes during sundown and uh, just take them off really quickly during sunrise. Um, but uh, we're sort of making ourselves at home in the swamp and um, excavating <laughs> this. Can. Right, <laughs> excavating this tomb uh, will take quite some time. So um, I will definitely spend, you know, most of my summers in the coming uh, three to four years in Siberia um, digging up this huge ancient burial. Well, very cool. So the the tomb is in what is today a swamp. Was it a swamp back then? Did they do that intentionally or have, have environmental conditions changed? It was most likely not. So um, these... Uh, Ancient steppe nomads, they built their tombs on river terraces. Um, that's where they're very visible. That's where uh, all the herding takes place. And very often these tombs were kind of markers. So if there's this huge mound uh, out on the open steppe, you know, everybody who passes it knows, oh, somebody important has been buried here. But in our case, yes, it's in a swamp, but um, imagine building a huge structure in a swamp. That's not really feasible, especially since all the stones and all the wood for the construction have been transported for at least 10 kilometers from the nearest mountains, right? So um, that means, no, it was not a swamp uh, when they built the tomb. But uh, the whole river terrace had later been submerged by uh, a change in the river course. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's amazing that, um, that it was preserved instead of eroded, uh, you know, if the, if the river has changed its course. But so, okay, so you've, you've excavated there this summer. Um, you had a large team. And what did you guys end up finding? Um, so we found actually... Super interesting things. Uh, <laughs> we had um, what we had expected was that we would find, you know, uh, Scythian remains. We would find a peripheral structure because uh, the periphery of big tombs is always uh, very important to archaeologists, again, because of context. So what we find sometimes are, you know, people having a feast, uh, people sacrificing something to the person who was buried there. So we find ritual stone circles and buried horse heads and things like that. Um, now, what we found out when we started excavating in the southern periphery of the tomb was that the site had actually been in use for a much longer time than we had originally thought. So um, we found Bronze Age pottery. Uh, that dates back uh, another 700 years into the past. Um, we found a lot of material from the 4th century AD. We found 15 skeletons um, buried very, in very, very shallow graves that we're still trying to understand what happened there. And we found uh, a very early uh, Scythian bronze mirror. Really? That's very cool. So the skeletons, are you going to be able to get any uh, dates uh, on the carbon in the bone? Absolutely. That's what we're going to do. The thing is, usually archaeologists, they date from the objects that are associated with a particular burial, right? 
Um, right. But these were very, very poor burials. So people were, you know, sometimes buried with an iron knife, but generally not with anything. Um, mm -hmm. And on top of everything, there were these really shallow graves, so about two centimeters under the surface. Um, oh, really? Yes. And uh, the reason that is, is because um, you have very little soil buildup in Siberia. Um, it is a rather arid region. And therefore, um, plants grow very slowly. So um, we have, like, from the Bronze Age pottery to the modern period, we have about 20 centimeters of soil, which makes uh, the entire documentation, um, say, very, very challenging. Because um, usually when you have clear layers, say, in a settlement, you really understand, okay, first this came, and then there's the next thing, and then on top of it, uh, there's yeah. the modern thing. But um, in our case, it's all one thick black package of layers, and um, documenting that and understanding that is very tricky. <laughs> but um, Right, we... because you have cultural remains at each soil, well, it's one soil horizon by the sounds of things, and that 20 centimeters represents uh, over 3,000 years of, of history, potentially. Exactly, it does. <laughs> um, but uh, all the more important uh, is uh, to sample skeletons. So um, we can not only see 14-date uh, the bones, but we can also try and extract collagen and then do DNA right. analysis on it. Um, that's something that has only really become feasible in the last couple of years. So There's really cutting-edge research there. And we're currently, um, so we sampled all the skeletons, and um, the samples are all in Switzerland at the moment being analyzed for ancient DNA. Excellent. And, and those are from the 15 skeletons. So what is the size, uh, what's your estimate of the size of this tomb, and then how does size relate to the importance of this tomb? Well, it is a very, very large tomb. It's almost 150 meters in diameter. And um, it's thousands upon thousands of tons of stones. So um, when you start excavating there uh, and you start moving some of these boulders, um, you start understanding how much human labor it took to build this thing up and um, of course that means somebody needs to command hundreds of people to build this thing up and that then means that okay the person who was able to do that <laughs> um, was a fairly powerful ruler right um, so this ruler would he or she I guess have built their tomb ahead of time, or was this done after they passed away by the the next generation? Usually it is assumed that these burial mounds were built up in a relatively short amount of time. So um, there was not a lot of uh, planning and, and starting the construction uh, before you die, like uh, in ancient Egypt, mm -hmm. but um, they would get together, have a large feast, and uh, just work really, really hard and get all those stones there to uh, erect a monument uh, for the past leader. Interesting. Okay, so 
you know, you've talked about the size and scale of this. You talked about the challenges. Uh, you know, what's what's the payoff here? And just let me lead into this a little bit more. You and I had spoken offline, uh, you know, in, on our expedition in Oman, and, and since then about the importance of finding an intact tomb in this area. Uh, the reason that many are not intact is because they've been looted, which is what your Frozen Corpses Golden Treasures documentary uh, uh, deals with as well. So maybe if you could just uh, discuss the importance of what this tomb will ultimately yield, since um, you're pretty sure it hasn't been looted, and then how looting has affected uh, just the general understanding of, of tombs and, and this culture in that area, or globally. Right. Um, well, start me. Let me start with uh, globally, <laughs> because sure. we're actually rapidly losing a lot of the cultural heritage that is out there, and with it, we're as quickly losing all the potential knowledge about ancient cultures and about our shared human past. And that uh, is, of course, an issue for archaeologists uh, in particular, but I think for a larger audience in general, because archaeology really provides identity, provides history for people. And um, looting is the issue. So um, as I mentioned earlier, archaeology works from context. So if we don't have the context, so if somebody takes out an item from a tomb, we don't really know what to do with it. Um, there's just so much lacking because it makes a difference that we know you know, this pot has been found with this knife because then you already start having a sort of cultural assemblage. Making another example, if you find a Chinese bronze mirror up in Siberia, that is super interesting because that starts telling you something about trade relations, about people traveling large distances in the past, about cultural connections. If you find a bronze mirror on the art market, it doesn't tell you anything. You just know, okay, it's another Chinese bronze mirror, and we got hundreds right. of them. So um, when we look at uh, Scythian tombs, Scythian culture in particular, um, about 95% of the tombs have been robbed or, or severely damaged. Um, that means already um, we have lost the largest part of what we could have known about this ancient culture. So it becomes very, very important to protect uh, what is remaining. Now, of course, uh, for an archaeologist, finding an undisturbed tomb, that is the ideal case, because then you get to study this culture sort of in its original state without anyone really uh, having taken an influence on it, removed things. Um, and uh, therefore, finding an intact tomb is, uh, you know, an absolute windfall. Now, right. um, for my Siberian project, um, there uh, are certain chances that this tomb is still unlooted, not as heavily impacted, um, but we're still not quite sure. So uh, only next summer we'll really start excavating um, the actual burial mound, and uh, then we'll quickly uh, gain a better impression of that. Well, I mean, that's interesting. My fingers are crossed for you guys. Uh, I mean, incredible amount of effort has already gone into this. And I mean, regardless, you're already learning things and seeing these cultural associations coming out of it. But, you know, tell me what the impetus is for looting these sites. I mean, you've, you've got uh, 
a generally underpopulated area, uh, Siberia, and you know what's to be gained from finding a Chinese mirror or I mean, a few iron no- knives or what else are people pulling out of here and what are you seeing on the open market? And I guess how much are those things going for? Well, um, the black market for antiquities is, is a very interesting network. So generally the people who loot the tombs, um, they are very often um, disenfranchised people, uh, especially in those areas that um, you know can basically decide, okay, we're, we're going to uh, work in the field for half a year or we'll loot some tombs and if we find something cool then we can you know uh, go on holidays for another two years basically but um and they're also the ones who uh more or less uh take the blame right but as it moves up the supply chain um it kind of becomes a white collar crime uh so it all of a sudden becomes this gentleman uh, thing to collect ancient art to save objects uh, out of the hands of unknowledgeable people, things like that. But um, what people are really doing with uh, collecting is they're creating a demand, and yes. this demand is being met. So the people uh, at the lower end they barely uh, receive any uh, any money for what they find. Um, it's ridiculous, especially in China, you know, you find an ancient statue from an emperor's tomb and you get like 20 bucks for it. But then, you know, it can move out of the country or it's sold to a regional middleman. And then each step of the way, the margins increase uh, until it's sold at international auction houses for like 100,000 US dollars. So the... incredible. <laughs> yeah, the the increase of value is absolutely insane. <laughs> Jeez. Well, okay, so you know, hopefully your tomb's intact. But what uh, what is your, I guess, what have your investigations uh, into this world led you to understand? I mean, now you know where it starts, where it ends up. But how how is everything getting washed through? And you know, kind of like what's What's your thought on the future of uh, of archaeology, and is it a race against time? It absolutely is, um, but it's not only for archaeologists that this is a race against time, because a lot of this uh, depends on legislation and depends on uh, trying to get to countermeasures that effectively work. And um, that's very often, as archaeologists, as researchers, we can, of course, consult on these things. Um, but we're not the legislators. So uh, we're dependent on politicians and on our abilities to actually communicate this effectively so people take action. Interesting. So what do you... I mean, it's an international problem, uh, and especially once you take artifacts out of their uh, home country, home nation... You know how do you how do you prosecute? How does that get tracked back? Uh, are there any successes there, uh, or is it you know still in a, a fledgling uh, area for um, for the the lawmakers to deal with? I know Egypt's figured it out pretty well though. Well, um, <laughs> let me put it this way: uh, it is very very hard to um, actually tie an object to a particular country. 
Um, usually, uh, traders, when they sell something, they attach the name of a culture to a particular object. Um, and that means when you say, okay, um, ancient Roman coin, right? That mm -hmm. could come from anywhere, including China. <laughs> so um, these things had a massive distribution over the Eurasian continent. And um, for uh, currently, the legal situation is that a country uh, needs to have a reasonable claim to actually ask for an item to be returned. Um, but as, as long as you don't have any sort of documentation uh, of its origin, um, it's almost impossible to really return something. <laughs> right. If it's a looted site that uh, nobody knew to exist and then it was smuggled out of the country, how can a country have a claim to it? I hear you. Exactly. Okay. Well, I mean, that's, that's incredible. We are running low on time, though. Two final questions for you. What are your next steps with uh, your Scythian tomb? Well, um, we're already ramping up uh, to conduct the next uh, research campaign in Siberia. We'll be out there by uh, late May next year, as soon as the snow melts. And this time we'll actually right. do a geomagnetic survey. So we'll uh, look at all the surroundings of the tomb and see if there are other peripheral smaller tombs, uh, ritual stone circles and uh, burials around there. And um, yeah, then we'll uh, conduct an even larger campaign with probably around 120 people for wow. about three months and hope that we get to uncover most of this uh, oldest Scythian royal tomb. Well, that's incredible, Gino. I wish you the best of luck with that. Um, final question for you. What's your mantra in uh, adventure exploration and you know, scientific exploration? I would say stay curious and keep on pushing. <laughs> you have to have that determination. Awesome, my friend. Well, Gino, it's been a, it's been a great pleasure having you on the podcast today. Uh, I mean, uh, gratuitously, just so we can catch up and I can hear about the amazing <laughs> things you've been up to and uh, how your research went this summer. But uh, I, I know this is something that uh, the Adventure Science listeners are, are really going to be interested in. It's a fascinating part of the world. It's an underexplored part of the world. Like you said, it's it's a blank canvas on, on a number of levels, not just archaeological. So, you know, I commend you on the work that you're doing out there and uh, helping shed some light uh, in that region and, and on that time period. So best of luck to you with your continued research. Thanks, Simon. Pleasure to talk to you. Oh, pleasure was all mine. Well, folks, I uh, hope you enjoyed another episode of the Adventure Science Podcast. Uh, I'm grateful to have had my friend Dr. Gino Caspari on the show with me today, and I hope you find it interesting. If you want to learn more about Gino and his work, just use Google. He is all over the place there. And, uh, you know, if you have any questions, he's always happy to answer. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Adventure Science and the projects that we do, uh, you can find us online at www.adventurescience.com. And we are in the social media world as well. And finally, a special thank you to our sponsors who help keep us going. Merrill, Farm to Feed, Stoked Oats and uh, Earthcast satellite imagery. So thank you all for listening to another great episode of the Adventure Science Podcast, and we'll catch you on the next one around.